Now let's take our Bibles, turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. As you can tell from your outline, we'll, we'll be in a number of uh, texts tonight uh, and uh, for the next few weeks as we work our way through this third part of our study on discernment. 2 Peter, we'll actually begin in verse 16 of chapter 1 and then read through verse 3 of chapter 2. Again, though, this won't be the only text we'll look at tonight. We'll, we'll begin. This uh, kind of gets us in, into the topic. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time, Their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. On September 6, 2003, a Roanoke Rapids man went to a food lion, amassed for himself what was going to amount to $150 worth of food. And this bill is what he presented to the cashier. Is there a problem with it? Yeah, there's one or two, right? I mean, right off the bat, I'm not aware of a 200 denomination, all right? So that's even before you get to, I'm also not aware of President Bush being on any money, all right? I don't know, maybe one day, but it's, you know, usually that doesn't happen while at least while you're still alive. You can't really tell it. Uh, maybe you can. Can you see on then the back side of the $200 bill, there are signs in the lawn of the White House. We like broccoli. Uh, USA deserves a tax cut. All right? No more scandals. All right, so that's the kind of thing that's in there. Uh, you'll also notice that the... Um, the bill is signed by both Ronald Reagan and his father, George H.W. Bush. 
Now you might think, wow, that's ridiculous. How crazy is that? Somebody would, would try and use a $200 bill to buy $150 worth of groceries? He got $50 back. Well, that's not the only example. There's some others around the same time. It seems like there are these bills that were floating around, and there were cashiers who were taking them, cashing them. These were being used. I, I, I know it, it seems almost unbelievable, right? Can't, can't somebody see the signs? Can't they tell the difference between a real bill and a fake bill. I mean, I think it's just another piece of evidence. You know, our, our, we're, we perhaps are not as good at discernment as we think we are. Now, I would like to think no one in this room would fall for the $200 bill, right? That perhaps you would sniff something out pretty quickly. But, but still, I, I, think, I think there is in a, another setting a lack of discernment that's just as troubling. It may not be a $200 bill that has the face of George Bush on it, but yet there are scores of believers, and by scores I mean thousands upon thousands, who listen to teachers, who buy books, who listen to particular kinds of music, Watch particular kinds of movies, all, all promoted in the name of Christ, all, all promoted as godly, quote-unquote, biblical, orthodox, Jesus-loving material. Yet, upon closer, really not even closer inspection, it seems that much of it is nothing more than just a fake $200 bill. And yet again, we have many, many believers who seem to be falling for the ruse. They seem to be buying in to, to what is uh, a dangerous trend, and, and that, that is one where, in, in large scale, believers are, are simply accepting whatever somebody in the right context, meaning a, maybe a pulpit, maybe up in front of a congregation, maybe they have books, maybe they have a big audience, and that there's a lot of folks who are just content to say, well, I guess that guy knows what he's talking about, so it must be true. And a lot of people are coming to listen to him, and the church is growing really big, or he sells a lot of books, so it must be okay. Or people say they're blessed by it, or I feel really good when I listen to him, so all this must be fine. Quite frankly, I think there's a lot out there in the Christian world that is nothing more than a $200 bill. But here's, here's really where this becomes a problem that, that really, I, I wish it were as easy as that. In other words, I, I wish it were as easy as, as simply pointing out what are obvious examples of false teaching, but it is a much more difficult and a much more subtle problem. And so tonight, we turn our attention to maybe the heart of the matter. As we've been studying discernment, as we spent a few weeks defining it, not only defining it in a general sense, but defining it then biblically. What does the Bible say about discernment? It encourages us to discriminate. It encourages us to be discriminating consumers of material. It tells us to be wise and to be knowledgeable, to test the spirits, to be aware of those who would try and lead us astray. We spent a lot of time noting from both Old and New Testament 
the, the, the reality of false teachers, the problem of false teachers, and the expectation that then we would be ready to defend the truth. And we kind of laid out then what discernment looks like. Then I spent a few weeks defending it. We looked at some church history. I noted how this has always been the way the church operates. The church has always clarified and refined orthodox theology in light of this other track that always seems to ride right alongside her, this other track of unorthodox, unbiblical teaching that every now and then tries to take over the bus. That this group tries to take it over and decide, no, we're going we're to drive it this way. We, we want to go this direction. So the church has always done this. Has, has reacted to challenges to orthodoxy. And discernment has always been a part of kind of the, the, the way that God has grown His church. And I have then argued over the last couple of weeks that I think this is even a ministry of the church. We are doing no favors to brothers and sisters in Christ in the pews when because we don't want to say anything that may hurt their feelings, we know they're listening to or reading dangerous teachers. Who am I to say? They seem to be blessed by it. It seems to warm their heart. But I, I, I would argue it is a matter of Christian love to identify, distinguish true teaching from false teaching. Tonight, we now get into the details of it. And what we're going to do then for the next few weeks, by, by the way, just so you know, okay, we won't be next week. Next week is a business meeting. But then the next groans, all right? <clears throat> and, and the only people who should come are concerned church members who want to be faithful to the church. All right, so, mm, right? So, we're, we're, we're going to take some time over the next few weeks, and, we're, and I want to lay out for you what would be a portrait of sorts. Really, it's more like a contrast, Uh, We're going to establish what does false teaching look like versus true. What what, what should we look for? In other words, this is really getting to the heart of the matter. How can we prepare ourselves? How can we better train ourselves to spot the $200 bill? How how can we tell if, if somebody may be a teacher? Maybe you're not necessarily deciding, yeah, that guy is a heretic and you know, not, not, not to be listened to at all, maybe not even a believer. Not necessarily that we're doing that, though that may be included. But even, even getting to the point to where we can listen to somebody preach and teach, listen to a podcast, we can read a book or a blog, and, and we can have some idea that I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure about what he or she is saying. Something doesn't seem to add up. Seems like this is George Bush on the front, right? In other words, something's not right here. And so this is, this is what we're going to do to lay out what is very clear in the pages of Scripture. The, the Bible, the New Testament in particular, gives us several markers, identifiers of false teachers and or teaching and encourages us to be mindful of what are the evidences that somebody is a good teacher, what are the evidences that somebody maybe should be put in reserve, right? Till you could find out more information. And so, this is what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. We're going to lay out in particular, as we try and equip ourselves to be more effective at distinguishing good teachers from problematic ones, 
we're going to lay this out in six primary contrasts. So, so I'm, I'm going to kind of lay out a portrait of both the false and the true at the same time. All right. So these six, in other words, you can tell by your outline, it's going to be this versus this. So we're kind of laying out these, these two sides. Now, let me preface this before we jump into our first one. The way I'm going to lay this out is going to feel and sound very black and white. In other words, right and wrong, good, bad, helpful, unhelpful. In other words, that, that's how it's going to sound. And, and, and I think we need to do it that way for clarity's sake. But also along the way, we're going to note that there's kind of a middle area here that we also need clarification on. In other words, you're not going to agree with everything anyone says. In fact, you probably don't agree with everything I've said. If you're thinking, oh, I, don't, I can't remember anything I disagreed with, you've not been listening long enough, all right? In other words, they very well could be those things where you say, you know what, I don't, I don't think you handled that right. Okay, in other words, there, there will come a time where we will need to distinguish, discriminate, discern <clears throat> in a continuum, not just of true and false, but of bad, not as bad, pretty good, good, great, all right? So that, that, that's, that's, we're going to need to refine our skills as we go through this, and we will, to know, so what is, what is the point at which we say, all right, I, I can disagree with this guy on this, this, and this, and still read him, or listen to her, you know, him, or read her, and, and, and go to her blog, or whatever it may be, I can still receive a lot from it, uh, and it's fine that we don't agree on this, this, and this. But then, then there will definitely be those that you say, no, this material has gone so far. They need to be rejected altogether. I also want to make something very clear. Though my tendency can be to speak really straightforwardly, right? If you've noticed, I have opinions about things. I think things about things. Uh, I... I never intend to suggest I know where some of these folks actually stand in regard to their relationship with the Lord. In other words, I'm not pronouncing judgment on anybody's soul. But you better believe I have every right to dissect every word, letter, and punctuation mark of what they say God's Word says. All right, so let's just, well, I just want to make that distinct, distinction because I may feel and speak very strongly about some of these teachers. Now, I will feel free, by the way, if I hear, if I've got a teacher that says, well, Jesus didn't actually, ra- you know, wasn't actually raised from the dead. Well, that person doesn't believe the gospel. I'm not making a judgment. I'm just saying, according to the Bible, in order to be a Christian, you have to believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That shouldn't be controversial, folks, all right? I hope it's not. If they don't believe that, then they are not properly identified 
as Christian teachers. Okay? You cannot be. You're something else, and maybe that's fine, but you cannot be a Christian teacher and deny some things. We'll talk about that then also as we go. So in other words, I just want to make sure we set this up properly. We're going to make you know, this versus this, but then there's also going to be this, this material in the middle, this trying to discern then, you know, how, how much can I disagree with somebody and yet still resource them spiritually, discipleship-wise, theologically speaking. All right, so six categories, six primary contrasts that help fill out our ability to be more discerning. What are we looking for? Number one, First contrast would be subtle deception versus straightforward communication. Also, you want to keep in mind that this is going to build, right? We've got six points here. And there, there may be more, by the way. <laughs> you know, uh, there's going to be enough time between now and when I finish this section, this list could get longer, okay? But for now, we've got six. And these, these are not hard and fast, as I'll explain about this one in particular in a moment, but these are, generally speaking, one of the signs, one of the markers, one of the things I'm going to look for when I'm listening to somebody, when I'm reading somebody. Are they getting to the point? Are they speaking honestly and straightforwardly? Are they laying out what they believe and why they believe in a way that it is accessible does it seem like they're doing something funny with language? Does it seem like they're playing around with their words? Does it seem like in one context they say one thing, but in another context they say another? In other words, part of the problem here with false teaching, the New Testament consistently warns us that false teaching is a subtle danger. It is a deception. Most of the time it's not a bold in your face, deny everything about the Bible and the gospel. In other words, it's, it's not that we're worried somebody's going to come in here with the satanic Bible and some of you are going to be led astray to start right reading it, right? That's not the concern. I'm not really concerned that somebody's going to drop off a box full of Korans in the back and we're going to suddenly decide, you know what, why don't we put those in the pews as well, all right? That's probably not going to happen. That's not our concern. Instead, it is the subtle deceptions that come in. So, notice how this shows up in the text, the first text we just turned to. Second Peter, and we read it in chapter 1 to begin with. So, we go on to the next slide. I think that's the um, blank to fill in there. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, a couple of important texts that warn us about these false teachers. You noted how, to begin with, in verse 16 through 21, Paul even begins by saying, I mean, Peter, in verse 16, begins by saying, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. Notice that language, that cunningly devised. That, that, that speaks of a subtle deception. That speaks of something that, that can be hard to identify. It's not... It's not a $200 bill with George Bush's picture on it. It's the, it's the counterfeit that's much more difficult to spot. It, it's, it's the kind, kind of counterfeit that probably, if we're talking about the money, the federal investigators who investigate it can tell it, sometimes even by touching it. 
You and I don't have the same kind of touch, but that's what we need to develop when it comes to our theology and listening to teachers. And, and Peter is making it clear, we didn't, we didn't come to you with this kind of cunning, crafty, deceptive language. Instead, we, we made known to you the truth. He goes on then to give his, his first-hand eyewitness testimony. By the way, one little interesting thing here about Peter. You, know, you notice how he uses the... the, the plural first person, we. In particular, when he says this, verse 18, and we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, unless James and John are sitting right there beside him, who's the, there's no other we. I mean, that's it. There are only three of them up on that mountain. Only three of them saw the transfiguration. I just bring that up to show, you know, 2 Peter is written here toward the end of Peter's life. I just think we see a man who has really developed. I mean, our experience with Peter in the Gospels is a man of boldness and perhaps rashness and certainly pride. But now we get to this point. Here was a man who was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And how does he refer to the situation? We. Includes every includes everybody in it. I just find that a little interesting feature of his writing here at this point. And then he, then he goes on to say, and when we, we proclaim to you not something that was of the will of men, but came from God. So he sets up the text to follow in 2 Peter chapter 2 by first establishing here, all right, we, we've been established and our preaching to you has been in the truth, straightforward, from God, rightly handled, truth. Then you see that transition of verse 1, but. That tells you everything, right? That's why if you ever see that at the beginning of the chapter, and you're starting at that chapter, go back and read the other chapter. It's just a little Bible study thing there, all right? If you see that word, you need to go back and see why is he using such a strong contrast. But there were false prophets among the people. In other words, they were there then, even as there will also be false teachers where? Among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Verse 3 then goes on to say, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. So, so this, this first contrast to me sets up more more in the manner in which material is presented than in the material itself. In other words, even before I get to the content of somebody's message, I want to pay attention to the way they're delivering that content. How are they telling me these things? Because false teaching, uh, unbiblical teaching, very often is not initially anyway in your face. It's subtle. It's chipping away at this point and this point and this point. It's it's a slow erosion. It's a a, a taking you away one one bit at a time. I I think of it kind of like what happens when you're at the beach. You know, our family just came back from the beach. It's why I look so healthy and tan, right? So we were at St. Augustine, and it's amazing. This is, you know, we're sitting up, you know, lounging on the beach. The boys are out there in the water. And what inevitably happens when you play in the water? 
where do you end up going? You drift, right? And kind of depending on how that current is, wherever you are, you're going to drift left or you're going to drift right. But what you're not going to do is you're not going to stay right in the center. And so every so often, you know, I, the boys would pop, pop their heads up, you know, and they're looking and, and we're waving them back, right? Waving them back because it is a, it is a slow slide away. I, I think this is what false doctrine does. It rarely has the church been presented with just a bold, in-your-face denial of long-held truths. Slow, steady, bit by bit. It isn't just Peter, by the way. I mean, Jude says the same thing. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. So again, it speaks to their subtlety. Jesus himself said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. In other words, Jesus even warns right from the very beginning, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is his first public sermon. And even in that, he's telling them, there will be these who will come and they're going to look okay to you. Let's put it in today's terms. They might stand behind a pulpit. They might be nicely dressed. They might even hold up a Bible. They might even have a mantra they repeat. They, they might even say, I believe the Bible. It says what it says it is. I am what it says. I, whatever he says. All right. In other words, there may be those who will do that. There may be those who will quote the Bible. There may be those who will then even say, as we know the Bible says. They love to say what the Bible says, but they never seem to tell me where they get it from. It's subtle. And this is then contrasted with what I would, what I would consider just straightforward, clear communication. I, th- I think this is what Scripture would encourage us to do. I think Paul is an example of this. Let- let's look at some examples. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We already saw that one in 2 Peter. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two, beginning in verse one. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, in reading that, don't don't think what Paul means is that someone can't be articulate. It doesn't mean that someone can't be a good communicator. And it doesn't mean that you cannot use persuasion and argumentation. I mean, clearly Paul does it a lot. What he means is, I did not come in the style of contemporary Greek sophistry, a particular philosophical way of communicating that was enamored with just the words that you used. 
In other words, if you used a lot of really pretty sounding words, then, you're, then it was entertaining, and that, that's, that's what they were looking for. He, he's saying, I did not come to you in, in any kind of particular Greek philosophical system, in particular talking to Corinth. I, that, that's not, that was not my manner. I, I didn't come with that, that intent that I'm just going to use the power of my words to persuade you to my way. Instead, he's saying, I came preaching simply the gospel. I declared it to you. So again, I didn't try and do anything cute or funny with it. I, I didn't try to do anything so that it would soften it or make it more exciting. In other words, I didn't do anything to it. I just brought it to you as it was. I brought you the gospel so, so that then your conversion would not be in the persuasion of my wisdom, but in the power of the gospel itself. Now, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I know we're turning a lot here, but it's probably good for us to know where stuff is in our Bible. Or on your app, I guess. I guess if you have one of those, you're a lot faster. Alright, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is reminding the folks in Thessalonica of, of the way in which uh, they came into the city and started the church, the manner of their ministry when they came into Thessalonica. And part of that, he says in verse 3, for our exhortation, and he's really referring there back to the, the way in which they boldly declared the gospel, which is what he says in verse 2, our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So again, Paul is, is defending his ministry in Thessalonica, in particular against what he knows to have been false teachers that came in after he left, trying to then discourage and uh, dissuade these young believers away from the gospel. And Paul writes them after hearing about some of the trouble they were enduring. In fact, he probably writes this from Corinth. And, and in, encourages them by reminding them, look, the way I came to you, the way we came preaching the gospel, was straightforward. It was clear. We didn't couch it in, in, in clever argumentation. We, we, did, we didn't try and put it in a package that was more agreeable to you. We, did, we didn't use any, any cunningness. We didn't use any deceit. We didn't use any flattery. We just preached it. So, I think this is, a, this is a good first contrast. When I'm listening to people, when I'm reading people, I want somebody to speak plainly to me. Straightforward. That doesn't mean it may not be deep. It can be deep and maybe even complicated. What I don't want you to do is speak out of both sides of your mouth. I, I don't want you to use words, but then me get the idea you're using words, but you mean them different. 
It was, I believe it was Adrian Rogers, the great Southern Baptist pastor, in the midst of the battle over the Southern Baptist Convention in the 80s, you know, trying to maintain conservatism, bring it out of uh, what was a slide toward liberalism, in particular trying to rescue the seminaries from what three of them in particular um, that, that were uh, seriously problematic. It, it was Adrian Rogers who said, the problem with liberals is they use our words but not our dictionary. It's a great statement. They use our words but not our dictionary. So in other words, there were debates back then where these who clearly denied the inerrancy of Scripture were telling people, we believe in the authority of Scripture. We, yeah, I believe in the authority of the Bible. That can mean a lot of things, can it? I believe, in, I, I believe as a father I have authority. That doesn't mean I believe I'm inerrant. All right? So in other words, these are not the same things. And so I need to know when somebody's speaking to me, are they using language the way I think they should use language? Now, you might hear this and think, all right, Pastor, do you have an example of it? What do you mean, then, by those who are maybe being deceptive? Let me also clarify that. I think there are those out there who are intentionally deceptive, and then I think there are those out there who have been deceived and are promoting the deception. So those are two different groups, by the way. At the end of the day, you're still at the same spot. I wouldn't listen to what they're saying. So there are some that I think are just con men. I think they're out there. But then I think there's a lot of teachers out there who probably really do love the Lord, love the the Bible, want to help people, but none of that means that what they're saying is true, right? None of those things guarantee that what they're going to say is true. So let me give you an example of somebody that I've been troubled with. I've mentioned this name before, so it won't be a new one. And that's Andy Stanley. And here's the kind of thing that he has done. Here, and this is the example of this particular point. So, in the midst of Sunday morning series, he's done two different ones that I, I want to mention. Uh, not, not that long ago, I believe. I don't think it was that long ago. I think maybe it was a winter sermon series where he, he preached an entire series of messages dealing with, uh, with the nature of our relationship to the Old Testament and the law and Ten Commandments. And the comment he made repeatedly, this was clearly a, a, a thing. This was something he wanted to get across to the people. We need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Okay, so that was the comment. As you can imagine, there were many in the evangelical world that were like, that's crazy train, all right? In other words, you know, that's what are you talking about? Unhitch ourselves. So in other words, Paul was wrong, <laughs> Because you do know the only Bible Paul had was the Old Testament, right? It's the only one he had, because he hadn't written half of it yet, the New, okay? So he only, he only had the Old Testament. I mean, even on its face value, that's almost a $200 bill with George Bush on it. Like, you hear that and you can think, oh, that's crazy. Unhitch ourselves. But this is what he said, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Those laws don't have any bearing on the New Covenant believer. This was the language that he used. In the sermon. So he gets a bunch of flack about it. And what does he do? He releases another statement saying, well, that's not exactly what I meant. I believe in the Old Testament. I believe in the Bible. I believe it's God's Word. Okay. You need to be straightforward with me. Say what you believe. 
believe what you say. Just give it to me. Another comment that he made, and this, this was a year, maybe even two years ago. Another comment he made was, we need to stop saying that we believe something because the Bible says so. That was the comment that he made. He went on to say, and I listened to this sermon, by the way, so I'm not taking him out of context. Went on to listen to the sermon, and his argument was, the center of our authority is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he went on to say. Our authority, the reason we believe what we believe, is because of the resurrection. Where do you find that out? Why do you believe the resurrection? Anybody? $200 bill with George Bush on the front, right? In other words, you hear that and you think, no, that can't be. So he got all kinds of flack by that. And so he comes back and again has to say, that's not exactly what I meant. This is the kind of thing that sends up a red flag to me. If somebody is saying one thing in their largest public gathering, writing it in their books, and, and then when, you know, when it creates this especially the social media storm, all right, when it creates this buzz around it, and you have some big, some heavy hitters, I mean, some big-name evangelical Bible teachers, like people who actually know the Old and New Testament, like in Hebrew and in Greek, start challenging him, then he comes back and he has to kind of re-explain himself. I have listened and read a lot of John MacArthur. You know what I've never come across? Him having to re-explain himself. Now, it may be out there. I've just never seen it. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who disagree. There are plenty of people who disagree with John MacArthur, and maybe some of you would disagree with John MacArthur. But, but he has made comments, he's written books, he's released articles, He's made public statements that people have raised a ruckus about. And what did he do the next day? He came out and he said, in essence, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly what I said. In other words, there's, there's clarity. It's straightforward. You may not believe it, all right? But it's straightforward. That, to me, is, is, a, is a sign. Now, granted, it's not the only sign. There could be a lot of heretics that will spew heresy straight forward to you, all right? So we're going to have to fill out this whole portrait. But this is kind of the first one. This is the first little morsel to, to chew on. Now, 2, 3, and 4 will be more about the content. Evaluating the content according to some specific categories. The next three will be about that. And, and so I hope that will then help us flesh out this portrait a little better. But but already, we, we do need to be aware this is a very real thing. The New Testament has warned us about this. These false teachers, are, they're not outside the church. They, they are these who would come in among us, unnoticed, unaware, creeping in. It is subtle. And we need to be aware. And, and one of the ways I think we can identify them is often their, their statements are subtle. Their deception is subtle. It's a bit at a time chipping away at the truth. Whereas solid teacher is often identified by what's going to be straightforward. You may not agree with it, but it may be straightforward, solid, right-at-you kind of teaching.
All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that in in a world that tries to present so many ideas, even in a Christian world that tries to present so many ideas, we are so thankful that you have given us a sure and certain word, your absolute, inerrant, infallible, authoritative truth. So, God, we just pray that you, by your Spirit, would continue to give us understanding of it and that we might be able to discern true teaching from the problematic teaching. I thank you for these who are here tonight. Thank you for their willingness uh, to be a part of this time with your people. I pray, God, each and every one here would know uh, your presence and wisdom and grace and guidance in the days to come. We pray that you would use us, whatever path you have us going down, that we would be mindful of the ways in which we can be a witness for the sake of your gospel, that we can be tools in your hands, that you can use us for your glory, and we would commit ourselves to that. We also pray, Father, that you'd gather your people back together, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.